A friend of mine, Don Whitney, who used to teach here, and we used to go over to Sam's and get the samples every, every Friday, because that was when they had the most samples and we wouldn't have to pay too much for our lunch. He told me once that in ministry, there's three things a pastor should do. One is to be faithful to the scriptures, and that's what we need to do, preach the word. And number two, he said, exalt Jesus Christ. And number three, he said, make application. Those three things I've tried to do in my ministry and my preaching, and I hope to do them this morning as well. You know, I've taught Hebrew for quite a while, and I usually uh, tell my students in elementary Hebrew, just like a great other Hebrew teacher did in his introductory class, by saying, welcome to the language God speaks. So I like to tease people, especially in churches and here, to tell you, if God speaks Hebrew, do you know what language we'll have to speak when we get to heaven? Hebrew, right? So while you're here, and this is a great opportunity, don't, don't uh, lose this opportunity to take Hebrew or Greek, the biblical languages, because your preaching will be very fresh, your teaching will be powerful, because you're looking at the Word of God as He's given it to us. But you got to get to, if you get to heaven, uh, if and when, <laughs> you get there, and you better be prepared because God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, check me out, He speaks Hebrew. He speaks in the Hebrew tongue, and you're going to need to get up to the pearly gates and, and start speaking Hebrew. So I can help you though. I can teach you some Hebrew real quick, and for the first half of eternity, you can say this, and you'll be okay, and then for the other half of eternity, you can say another Hebrew term, and you'll be okay, all right? So listen carefully and repeat after me, and you'll be okay when you get to heaven. Ready? Say this. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You just spoke Hebrew. Do you know that hallelujah, not, the, not that Greek knock off hallelujah, but the hallelujah. Hallelujah is, and hallelujah is actually Hebrew too, but hallelujah is literally praise you all the Lord, as my wife says. She's an East Tennessee hillbilly. So I'm a Baltimorean. Okay. So I say city stuff. I say stuff the inner city, but she says, anyway, you all praise you the Lord, praise ye the Lord, right? That, and all you have to do, get up to heaven and say, hallelujah, and you're good to go. You know, fine. You walk those uh, golden walkways, go through the pearly gates and streets of gold and say, hallelujah, and you'll be good. But you might get tired of saying hallelujah. I don't know why, but if you do, then say this. Are you ready? Say, amen. You just spoke Hebrew. Amen doesn't come from the, the Greek New Testament. It's from the Old Testament. Jesus said it a lot. Amen, amen. It, may, it means that's right. That's something you can count on. So be it. Amen. So if you want to get to heaven and start talking Hebrew, just say amen or hallelujah and you'll fit in just right. And uh, you'll have fun and praise the Lord God. Now, I gave you that little information because it literally ties into the message today. So in your Bibles that you bring to chapel every Sunday, please turn to Psalm 100, every Sunday, every chapel, I'm sorry. 
I, I tell the church members this. I'm, I'm preaching, I've been preaching up at First Baptist Church of Polo, seeing if um, they're, they've, if you ever heard of the Resound Network in the Missouri Baptist Convention, you should read about that, but it's an attempt to help churches revitalize, and so I've been trying to help little First Baptist Church of Polo up in the north to uh, do that. But I say this to my churches and to the people I preach to, look in your Bibles that you bring to chapel every chapel. Now, I know that's old-fashioned because now I should say, turn to the book of Psalm 117 in your device because you can pull out your phone or your iPad. But you know what? I kind of like people seeing people um, with their Bibles. I think you can kind of be a stealth Christian. You're out in public and you're looking at your phone. But it's something different when you take your Bible and you open it. You might get persecuted. You might get looked at funny. But it's the Word of God, and that's what we're seeking to learn and follow and study. Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the Psalter. Um, Matthew Henry said there is a whole lot of gospel in this psalm. So we're going to try and look at it, but uh, I want you to, to do this. Now, I'm not trying to kind of, oh, I don't know, be antsy or brag or anything, but I'm actually going to read it to you in Hebrew because it's very short. And the reason I want to do this is because you're going to, because you're going to hear something uh, in the psalm that we just did. So I, I want you to know this is important because we have to understand what the psalmist is trying to tell us here. It's anonymous. We don't know who it is. Some scholars want to put it with Psalm uh, 116 and others want to connect it to Psalm 118, you know, but here it is, 117, the shortest psalm in the Psalter, and then 119, two psalms away, is the longest one. But I would almost argue that Psalm 117 packs as much of a punch as 119, even though it's longer. So here it is in Hebrew. Hallelujah et Adonai kol goyim. Sabe huhu kol haumim ki gavar alenu the gavar alenu hasdo the emet Adonai leolam hallelujah and that's the end of the psalm you heard hallelujah in there right your versions may translate that as praise uh, the Lord or it might even have hallelujah there. Um, in the uh, Christian Standard Bible version here. Now, I'm going to translate this in my own translation as opposed to what's in your Christian Standard Bible or some others, but it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all tribes, for mighty over us is his covenant love, and the faithfulness of the Lord is everlasting. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There are a hundred and, I'm sorry, there are 15 hallelujah psalms in the Psalter. 15 of them either begin or end with hallelujah. You may have known that, you may not. Psalm 117 is number seven in that list. And um, it's, it's one of what we call the Hillel Psalms, meaning hallelujah. And these Hillel Psalms were actually used in the worship of Israel. Interestingly enough, 
A group of the Hillel Psalms, often called the Egyptian Hillel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, was sung at the Jewish Passover on the eighth day of the Passover. In fact, the, the grouping um, of Psalm 113 through 114 were sung before the meal at Passover, and Psalm 115 through 118 were sung after the last cup or the fourth cup. So it's quite possible that Jesus and the disciples sung this psalm at the Last Supper because they were observing uh, the, uh, the, last, the Passover before Jesus was crucified. Uh, Matthew 26.30 tells us after singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So it's quite possible that Jesus sang this psalm, or Psalm 117, within that grouping of Psalm 115 through 118 after the Passover meal. Uh, it's the shortest psalm in the book. There's only uh, 30 words in English, depending on the translation, 17 words in Hebrew that I read. But what I like to say about it is that it functions as praise in a small passage. You've heard that statement, good things come in a small package sometimes. You know, when I was a kid, we had these two dowager aunts that would show up at Christmas and they'd give us these big packages like this of, of, uh, of stuff. And they were always handkerchiefs, always, every year, handkerchiefs. So one year they showed up and they gave my brother this big package and we knew what it was. And they gave me this little itty bitty package. I'm going, what? Yeah, it's a little itty bitty package. Uh, my brother opened his up, and handkerchiefs. I've opened mine up. It was one of those matchbox cars. <laughs> I was so excited. You know, good things come in small packages sometimes. Uh, but there's a lot of teaching here for the Christian disciple, the disciple, probably more than you would think. It's a typical poem, and I love to talk about the poetry. It has what we call a bicola and a half hemistitch, which just means that it has two lines and half a line. And when we look at it, we need to stop and think what, it, what the psalmist, the author is trying to tell us because there is so much here in our faith and our understanding about, um, you know, about uh, what we need to do as believers. Oh, I was supposed to tell you that when I told somebody that Jesus may have sung this uh, psalm after the uh, Passover of the Last Supper, one lady in my church came up to me and told me I was wrong because she said that everyone knows that Jesus sang, blessed be the tie. You have to be an old Baptist to understand that. That's, I'm sorry if my jokes are just, you know, that's what every Southern Baptist did after taking the Lord's Supper, blessed be the tie that binds. Well, Anyway, it's great poetry, and it deserves its own independent study. As the poetry of praise, it plays a very important part in the worship of Israel, and it needs to be meditated upon. After all, David said, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's in Psalm 19. This psalm is also, one line of it, is also quoted by Paul in Romans 15, 11, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes as well. Here's the main point, I think, of the text. When God's character is revealed through 
proper, the proper praise of his people, the whole world will recognize who he is and what he has done for his people. In fact, what he has done, period, and then give him the true praise that he deserves. So what I want to try and indicate here for you all this morning is what God has done is to work in the mighty saving act of the gospel, giving his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins on the cross. We as believers need to recognize that God must be the focus of our praise. His gift of the gospel is the reason for our praise, and we have a divinely called mission to tell the world about our Savior and challenge them to make Jesus their Savior as well. This is the essence of evangelism and missions. I heard one person say that there's no evangelism or missions in the Old Testament, and I think that's totally wrong. I think it's all over the place, because Israel was supposed to be a light unto the nations. They were supposed to serve God in the covenant in the correct way, have a right relationship with him and a just relationship with others so that they would point to the greatness and the majesty and glory of God. And that was their evangelism and their missions to point to God. Well, this is a praise in a small package, and I think there's four things that we can learn from this, my four points. They're simple. The focus of praise, the reason for praise, the people who are called to praise, and the people who call others to praise. Now, I don't go through this in a verse 1a, 2a, 3 form, but we're going to jump back and forth to get this. So first of all, what is, according to this psalmist, the focus of praise? In other words, who is called to be praised? In this little psalm, which has, what, maybe 12, uh, 17 Hebrew words, the name of the God, the name of God, we tend to use that term Yahweh or the Lord or Adonai, occurs three times. So the clear person who is the focus of praise, who is to be praised, is the Lord God. None other, just Him. It also indicates in the focus of praise how He is to be praised. So in other words, we're supposed to praise him, and that's where the word hallelujah comes from. We're to praise him, which is the proclamation of the greatness of the acts of another in the Old Testament, and we are to laud him or glorify or extol him, that is to acknowledge the value which the acts of another have in regard to us personally. We need to praise God for who he is, and, and what he's done, but we need to praise him also for what he's done in our hearts. If he hasn't done anything in your life, then maybe you ought to start asking the question, who is he to you? Because the more we come to walk with Christ, the more we see as a disciple God working in and through us. And we could laud him for his acts of love and care and guidance for us individually, personally. And praise isn't something that we all raise formally and ritually. It's praise that needs to come from our hearts, from us individually, to focus on God. Secondly, we need to look at the reason for praise. The reason for praise is given to us in verse 2. 
And I like this phrase. Uh, I translated it in the beginning of verse 2. Great for mighty over us is his covenant love. The... um, Uh, The CSB says, for his faithful love to us is great. And there are two items in this verse that are tremendous uh, understanding of of Old Testament faith, encapsulized in this small package, but expands so far beyond all of the pages of the Old Testament in the way God works with his people. Some translations would say, great is his faithful love or his steadfast love is mighty. And the reason for great is his faithful love and how I translated it for mighty over us is his grateful, is his covenant love is because the root that is used there is the root gavar, which is also translated gibor, el gibor in Isaiah, almighty God in the throne names. And it's also used to indicate uh, David's mighty men, mighty men, the same root. A gever in, in uh, modern Hebrew means a mensch, a man. You know, he's mighty. Be that as it may, the idea here is that God isn't wimpy. God isn't a sissy. God is not impotent. God is not someone who runs away from problems, but he is great and mighty. And he has done these things for Israel. Great is his faithful love to us. But our God is a mighty God. He's still on the throne. It doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter how bad the world is. It doesn't matter how difficult things are. He is a mighty God. And he doesn't want us to shy away from difficult things, to not trust him, but to go where he leads seeking to other people to help them know that we trust God in all of his good things for us because he has the best for us. And to be in God's will is the safest place in the world. To be out of God's will can, is fraught with difficulties and problems. But God's might is great in the fact that he showed us his hesed. Have you ever heard of that word hesed? That's the word right here, faithful love. It's translated in so many different ways that you can't put your finger on just one way. It is a covenant word. In the covenant with Christ Jesus, the new covenant that we have, God's hesed is there. In the covenant that Israel made with God on Sinai, God's hesed was there. It means his steadfast love, his covenant love, his faithful love. God doesn't pull away his love from us. It's not fickle. It isn't based upon all the good things we might do for him. It is always there because he loves us unconditionally. He showed that by giving Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. His love, his steadfast love, the psalmist said, is mighty. It's great in Exodus 17, 11, when Moses lifted up his hand to the Lord, Israel was mighty in battle. It's the same word. Um, in Genesis 49, 26, um, Joseph's circumstances are being discussed. And it says there that God's presence or blessing was mighty on him. This is the word, mighty 
is his faithful love. In the second part of of the verse, it says as well that his faithfulness endures forever. His faithfulness is forever, the psalmist says it. And the word faithfulness is the word emmet. Do you know anybody by the name of emmet? Emmet means true. Now, it's translated in, in various different places, particularly the King Jimmy version, I'm sorry, King James, that says, um, uh, that says um, his, his truth, God's truth, the Lord's truth. Well, the word doesn't exactly mean truth in the sense of a body of knowledge of something that is true, but it talks about the character of God being true. In other words, he's reliable, he's faithful, he's trustworthy. We use the, in English the phrase, you're true blue. You ever heard that? Somebody is true blue, you're always there. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. Emmet means true blue, faithfulness. So God's faithfulness here is forever. It never goes away. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on the world or issues around us. It's God and God's character where he is true. Quite interesting is about this is that in Exodus um, 34, uh, we have God's attributes. Actually, the, the uh, Jewish commentaries say that there's 13 13 attributes of God in Exodus 34, 5, and 6. Two of these are expressed right here, hesed and emmet. In fact, they can be put together as a hendiades where you talk about faithful or reliable faithfulness. God's hesed is always reliable. He's always there. So the psalmist uses these as what we call a word pair in Hebrew poetry to indicate a powerful truth. That the reason for praise is because God's character is shown in his covenant love and his faithfulness to us. And that's one thing we need to learn about God. That God is always there. It doesn't matter where we are. He's always there. And he's always faithful. Now I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second because I get tired of this and a little frustrated. All right? And I hope that you won't do it, and I hope that you will change, and I hope that you will carry on uh, this campaign of mine to change this in the churches and in your worship. Please, in your prayers, don't say, God be with us. May God be with so-and-so. May God be with so-and-so. God be with us, so-and-so. If we're Christians, if we believe in Jesus Christ, he's always with us. His presence is always there. Whether we acknowledge his presence or not, what we need to say is, God, help me to acknowledge your presence in my life right now. Help so-and-so acknowledge the presence of God in their life. See, the whole covenant Sinai was based on the fact that Israel would become God's people and God would become their God. And the whole issue of the covenant is the promise of the presence of God. Moses had to deal with those rebellious Israelites. And all the time he was coming back to God and saying to God, don't leave us. Keep your presence. The tabernacle indicates his presence. The temple is where his presence is. If you've asked Jesus Christ into your life, Christ is in your life. God is in your life. Please don't go around telling people, I hope he shows up today. When you worship 
acknowledge his presence. He's inhabiting our praise, and he's here with us when we worship, wherever we are. In fact, that ought to be one of the most magnificent and marvelous things that churches do, have worship services wherever and whenever they are, in which they recognize the very presence of a holy God in their midst. God works when that happens. I've preached in storefront churches, and I've preached in huge mega churches. And there's no difference between the presence of God in both. I've been in storefront churches where God's presence was being manifested so much by the people that you felt the leadership and the, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I've been in mega churches where it's dead as a doornail. It's because of God's presence. And God goes with us. Jesus, what did he say, by the way, in the Great Commission? Which happens to be based on Old Testament theology anyway, the Great Commission. He said at the end, and look, really behold or look, what did he say? I am with you always. So he never takes a break. He doesn't take a vacation. The Psalms tell us that he's a 24-hour, seven-day, 365-day, uh, a year God. He doesn't slumber and he doesn't sleep. His presence is with us. So just please don't say, God, please be with us. If you know Jesus Christ, Thank him for his presence. Thank God for his presence. And then say, now may my praise be honorable to you. May my actions follow your desires. May I do your will so that people will see you too. Because this is what this psalmist is trying to get us to understand, which I'll get to in just a minute, that it is we need to show God to others. All right, let's go on. People who are called to praise. And, and this is a kind of kicker here, because you would think that the Psalms is all about Israel's and, and people calling Israel to praise God. But you have to understand that this Psalm starts out really with um, two imperatives. And the imperatives, and we need to study these imperatives because we're going to try and figure out who they are directed to and who's saying them. So the first thing we're going to talk about here in this second thing about the people who are called to praise um, is the fact that they're not Israel. Now, the word for nations that I read, goyim, sometimes can be used of Israel, but most of the time it's used of Gentiles. I, was, um, uh, I went to Hebrew Union College, a Jewish school. First thing they told me is that I'm a goy. I'm not Jewish. I'm a goy. So we got treated slightly differently, not badly, but, you know, I'm a goy. So there were different expectations and other things. But the goyim or the Gentiles, it, it's translated easily in the New Testament as the Gentiles. And, and the, uh, the people that are supposed to praise God, the ones who are being commanded to praise God, are the nations and the tribes or the people. All tribes, all peoples, both of these are, the word for tribes or people is never used for Israel in the Old Testament. And goyim can be used for a couple of times for Israel as a nation, but most of the time it refers to all the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So why in the world is this Jewish Israelite psalm in the Psalter calling people from outside the community of their faith to praise their God? And that's what's unique about this. And this is what caught the eye of Paul. 
Here, we are being called as Gentiles to tell others about Israel's God. To tell Israel about what God has done for Israel, because we'll talk about that in a minute too, really quickly. But this is important. Why are the Gentiles called to, called to praise? Because God's love and covenant is to be proclaimed to them. Preaching the gospel to the Gentiles was not an afterthought with God. By living as a holy nation of priests, a chosen people, Israel was to call others to praise the one and only God of the universe. And the psalmist is reiterating that. That's a fact of their faith. They were called to be a nation of priests, calling others to understand and acknowledge and worship the God who created us. And that's what's so interesting here. This is why Paul quotes this verse in Romans 15, 11, in a catena of Old Testament passages that he raises to prove that the Gentiles must be evangelized. Paul is saying that they are to be evangelized. This is what he says in verses 8 and 9. Now I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises to the Father and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. You see, the psalmist is saying, it's not our faith alone. I can't walk around saying, look at me, I'm an Israelite. I'm supposed to share God with everyone. You know, Christians sometimes have that idea, oh, everybody can come to God in their own way. Let them do it. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to share Christ with them. But that's not what the psalmist is saying is the essence of our faith. We are to exalt Jesus. We are to tell people about our great God and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And that's what the psalmist is doing in this little itty bitty psalm. He's focusing on the world out there. And telling us, the inward crowd, that we have a call to missions, a call to evangelize, a call to share the gospel with others. And we can so easily get in our group, us four and no more, and talk about all kinds of things, godly and churchy and all that kind of stuff, and ignore the people who are going by us every day, all day, who are lost in their sins without Christ Jesus. And that's not what the psalmist is telling us to do. That's not what the Great Commission tells us to do. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to brag on Jesus. Talk about God. Talk about what he's done in our own lives. Because the last part of the psalm is the people who call others to praise. So you have to understand, there's an impar two imperatives here. And the imperative has a, has a person who is speaking it. You do this, and it has an object who is being commanded. The object being commanded are the Gentiles. The people who are speaking this are the Israelites. So we are actually, the psalm is actually telling us that as believers in Christ, we are to go out and address the world with the gospel. The, the psalmist addresses the Gentiles with the with imperatives. The imperative means that we are supposed to go and tell people what God has done for us. Look in that one verse there. It says, for great is his faithful love unto us. Great is his faithfulness. 
His faithfulness is everlasting, but mighty over us is his covenant love. That means we're supposed to tell people about God's steadfast love and about his eternal faithfulness. Here's the idea. We were sinners. God saved us. We walk with him. He blesses us. We praise him to non-believers and they marvel. They seek him because of our witness and they come to Christ. That's God's evangelistic plan of salvation. And then they praise God and we all praise God together. That's kind of the idea. Um, We need to be out there telling people all the things he's done for us. And if we don't know what he's done for us, maybe we ought to start counting our blessings. This is a clarion call to evangelism and missions. This was prophecy. The Gentiles were to hear and praise God. Cornelius did so. And, and the Gentiles did who heard, preach Paul, who heard Paul preach to them. The world needs to hear the gospel. We do it by praising God for who he is, for his grace, for his care. That's one of the greatest ways that we can share with others. You don't have to debate people about this salvation or that salvation or what happens in the world or skepticism or anything else. Just share with them what Christ has done for you. It's one of the most powerful things we have as believers to share with others our Jesus and what he means to us. I'm not trying to be over-sentimental about Jesus But I want you to understand that God did such a marvelous thing in giving him on the cross for us that our application is to share that with others. And if we keep silent, we aren't doing what the psalmist here encourages us to do, which is to tell others about it. The world will notice the pure praise of God's believers. It won't notice spoiled whiners or spoiled children who want God to do more for them and focus on themselves. But they will listen when we share what God has done in our lives to help us to be what we ought to be. So what should we do? What should be, indeed, our application? We need to remember that the Lord, God our Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, must be the focus of our praise. Our praise needs to be given to the great God of the universe, to Jesus Christ, our Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us live. That's the Trinity, by the way. We also need to know the reason why we praise the Lord. We need to look into our own hearts and at least be grateful and, and with great gratitude and thankfulness for your salvation. Because you've come to know the Lord and he's forgiven you of your sins. And he's wanting to live, uh, help you live a successful life. I think it's important to understand that Christianity brings about successful, satisfied living. I was a youth director once and I made the comment in a youth meeting that um, you can't be successful in life unless you know Jesus Christ. And there were two big old football players there and they cornered me. I was a little small, skinny guy, you know, like 90-pound weakling. And they cornered me and they said, what do you mean you can't be successful without Jesus? Well, I explained it to them. We got down on our knees and they too, the two of them asked Jesus into their hearts. Because Jesus makes us successful. 
Jesus gives us the life that is eternally blessed. It, what, it, Jesus is what matters for time and eternity. And we need to be proud of that. And we need to be willing to share that. And we need to show to others that Jesus Christ is the answer for all that, that the world needs. God made us and he gave us his son, Jesus, to redeem us from the power and the bondage of sin. And that's the greatest thing in the world, to be able to walk with Jesus, to know that he's there wherever we are. And by the way, it sure would help in our temptation to sin if when we were tempted, we knew that Jesus was right there beside us at the same time. You can't hide things from God. You know, that idea what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not true. God sees it anywhere, no matter where you are. And if we recognize that Jesus is with us all the time, his presence is there, maybe it would give us pause before we do those mistakes and sin against him. We also need to realize that God wants the world to praise him. God is not happy. Now, I don't know what you want to talk about the character of God, but he's not happy with people ignoring him. He wants the whole world to praise him. What did Paul say at the name of Jesus? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's a promise, and that will happen. Well, God wants Christians to help others, people, other people to understand that, the world to know that. And then we need to be faithful in witnessing. We need to praise God ourselves. It's easy as a minister to kind of get into that little rut where you're doing it because you know you have to do it. You've got to say the right things. But take the time to give God your praise your love and thanksgiving. And then above all, call others to praise God as well. I can praise God for my salvation, for his grace, for his blessings. All those things, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings. See, remember what God has done. Kidner said this, the summons to praise in this Psalm 117 recoils on those who use it with the obligation to make its invitation heard beyond their walls and their immediate circle. The shortest Psalm proves in fact to be one of the most potent and most seminal of all because it calls us to challenge the world to praise our great God for what he's done.